There are two readings today, what a treat. The first one is from Psalm 63, verses 1 to 8. Psalm 63, verses 1 to 8, it says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And the second reading is from John 21, 15 to 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. It's great to be here with you. Very warm welcome, and especially warm welcome if you're visiting us for the first time. It's great to have you with us. I'm Will. I'm on staff here. And tonight, I'm going to talk about intimacy with God. Intimacy with God in the context of suffering and challenging circumstances. Suffering is common to the human experience. None of us entirely get a pass. But as Christians, when we go through valleys or deserts or trials or fire or pain or loss, there is an opportunity in those seasons for us to have our love for God deeply refined and revealed. And we're going to look at two men who experienced that process, King David, and then hundreds of years later, the Apostle Peter. Psalm 63, our first passage, was written by David himself. Now David is known for his closeness to God. As a young shepherd boy, he would worship God on the hillsides. He became an anointed harpist, a writer of psalms, an abandoned worshiper of God. He would dance before the Lord. He's described in scripture as being a man after God's own heart. And he was the one who set up David's tent, not the one in Sussex, but the one in Judea. 24-7, year-round radical worship, hundreds of musicians honoring God with the fragrance of their adoration. And David ran after God for most of his life. He knew God intimately. But how did he form such a close relationship with God? How did he develop such deep love 
for the one above? Well, it's because his love was refined and brought forth by what he went through. Verse nine of this psalm reveals some of the backstory. David states there are people who want to kill him. These were men who wanted to jam a spear or plunge a sword through his guts and leave his body to waste. He could be referring here to King Saul, a man who David had served blamelessly, but now out of simple jealousy wanted David dead. Or some believe this psalm is talking about his son Absalom, who drove David out of Jerusalem to seize the throne himself. Another terrible betrayal from his own flesh and blood. But either way, David's life was on danger, in danger. He was on the run. And he found himself, as the psalm says, in a dry and parched land where there was no water. He was stuck in the desert wilderness of Judea. And over his life, David spent many, many years in that place. Years of waiting, years of suffering, years of pain, years of disappointment. In fact, it was 15 years between his anointing and his appointing as king, and much of it was spent on the run, hiding and waiting to move forward into what God had for him, unsure of whether it would ever happen. And some of you will be able to relate to that. And it tested David's heart. He could very easily have been defeated by his own sense of injustice. He could have been swallowed up in that vast wilderness by his own bitterness, his own self-pity, his own disappointment. He could have just quit. As Job's wife told Job in his trials, just curse God and die. And many others would have done that in David's situation. They would have been eaten up by their own pain and anger and withered away in the desert. I've seen many people stop loving Jesus and even fall away from faith entirely because of the things they've suffered. It's so easy to withdraw from God or blame God or take offense at God when hard things happen, especially when they happen for little discernible reason. But Jesus said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. David chose not to be offended. And instead, in that long season of suffering, he decided to run to God and go deeper in worship. He was being chased by others, but he decided to chase after God. And this psalm shows something of what that looks like. Please turn to verse one. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. In that arid place, in the desert of his own soul, an intense thirst for God arose, a longing for God, and a worship came up out of his heart, a voice that said, as long as I live, I will praise you. David offered God the worship that you can only give on this earth, the worship in the face of suffering. You won't be able to give that kind of worship in heaven, but David gave that sacrifice in his very hardest moments. Even though he wasn't getting his own way, he decided he was going to worship. And as he did so, his love for God was refined and revealed 
in the fire of his afflictions. And he was brought into a costly but ever deeper intimacy with God. If we find ourselves in a desert, and I've been through many, if we're caught in a valley, a hard place, a time of trial, if we're experiencing injustice or heartbreak or loss, the challenge is, will we turn to God? Will we run to him? Will we pursue him in the barren wasteland? Will we seek God even if we don't feel like it? Will we look up at the light when all around us is darkness? Will our suffering suffocate us? Or will it be a springboard towards God? Will we worship God no matter what? Will we follow Psalm 42, which says, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. I once belonged to a church where one of the pastors called Chris had a daughter who just two or three hours after birth had a seizure and the doctors said her brain was so damaged by the seizure that she would never walk again or function in a normal manner. And then a few years after that she developed really severe scoliosis and it twisted her spine so much that her life was in danger. And she had to undergo a really painful eight-hour surgery to have her spine fused from the base of her neck to her tailbone. As part of the operation, she actually had to be hung upside down for a while, which resulted in her eyes being swollen shut for a week afterwards. She lost all her blood several times over and kept bleeding for days afterwards, and they struggled to stop the bleeding. Now, can you even imagine walking through that as a parent. When something happens to your child, you feel it a thousand times more than if it happens to you. But her father refused to curse God and die. And this is what uh, my pastor Chris wrote. A few days after the operation in the hospital room, I put an empty chair in front of me. And I said, Satan, you're going to sit in that chair. And you are gonna watch me as I worship God in this hospital room. And within about two hours of me pouring my heart out in worship, the doctors came in and confirmed that the bleeding had stopped and the tubes could be removed. That is Psalm 63. There is no pain too deep. There is no trial too dark that can stop us from directing our love to Jesus. And when we do that, God lays out a banqueting table for us in the presence of our enemies. And he says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And the fruit of worshiping in the wilderness is often to receive a greater revelation of God. After worshiping, David reaches verse two. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power 
and your glory. Because he used his suffering to turn to God, David stepped across the threshold into a fresh encounter with the divine. He stepped into the promise that God gave the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. If we seek God in the midst of our trials, God can tr- if God can trust us in the furnace of affliction, then he will refine and purify our seeing of him. He may not have sent the affliction, but he can use it. That was David's experience. He praised through the pressure until he beheld the power and the glory of God. And he learned that in every valley, God was with him. As David wrote in those familiar words of Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. When we're going through a testing time, we may never understand why in this life. But we have that promise that God is with us. We may not get answers, but we will get his presence. He will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, we will experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the gentle shepherding of Jesus, the deep love of the Father. And we will be led into ever deeper intimacy with God, which is why in the wilderness David clung to God and he let his love be refined and deepened and drawn out of his heart in ever greater measure. So let's look at another example, another life, a different story, but a similar principle. The apostle Peter is another person whose love for God was refined and revealed through what he experienced. Like David, Peter had a heart after God. He became a close, intimate friend of Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples, but he was also one of the three disciples chosen to be in Jesus's inner circle. Peter was the first apostle to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. His love gave him sight. He was the one who risked all when Jesus came walking in the water on the storm to step out onto the water himself, to walk towards Jesus, to be with Jesus while the others held back. Peter was the only one to put up a fight at Gethsemane, hacking a man's ear off to protect the master who he loved. And after the death of Jesus, Peter ran to the tomb. He was the first apostle to enter that dark place, desperate to see whether Jesus was still there. Peter always wanted to be near Jesus. And as a rough fisherman, he may not have had the the poetry of David, but he had that same burning desire for God. But Peter's love had not yet fully matured. He still had to go through his own valley, his own suffering before his love was refined. Like David, pain was a part of his process. Despite his efforts to protect Jesus on the night of his arrest, his love was not strong enough yet. It wasn't a love unto death, so he fled with the others. And then he denied Jesus three times to the servant girl before hearing the cock crow and having to look straight into the eyes of the one he had betrayed and face the shame and the regret and the pain of that moment. And scripture says he went out and wept bitterly that night. 
and then followed the even greater grief of Jesus' death, of losing the one he loved, and the dark, dark days that followed. His world was over, shattered into pieces, and Peter was left a broken man. But in this fire of suffering, Peter's love was refined and revealed. And we see how this this happens after the crucifixion. Peter goes fishing with some of the other disciples. When we're feeling lost, we often go back to what we did before. And we often try to numb our pain through distraction or busyness. The disciples were keeping themselves busy. They fished all night trying to keep their minds off the pain, but they didn't catch a single little fish. I've often found that life is not very fruitful when Jesus isn't with us. But then Jesus appears on the shoreline and tells them to cast their nets on the other side and they catch a huge haul of fish. It's just what they'd been striving for the whole night. And it was all hands on deck to carry that heavy net onto the boat. And this is the exact moment you needed to be helping your friends, particularly Peter, the professional fisherman, the key man in the boat. But Peter's sufferings had made him realize that there was only one thing that was really important. So he let go of the net with all its valuable cargo, he jumped into that water, and he ran to Jesus. Now nobody could have blamed the others for staying in the boat, it was a miracle haul, after working tirelessly all night, but holding onto those nets is what stopped him, stopped the others from running to Jesus. I've learned in life that if we are not careful, it can be the good things God gives us, even our callings, that keep us running from Jesus. It's so easy to get tied up and tangled in the nets of life. There's always something more urgent to do than spending time with Jesus. And it's really hard for us to let go and really hard to even be still before God in case all of our pain comes up especially in dark seasons. It's so common to bury pain in busyness, and there's nothing wrong with being busy at times, but busyness without boundaries kills intimacy. Busyness without boundaries can cause us to neglect our time with Jesus and just be distracted with lesser things. Busyness can actually harden our hearts and suffocate our love, and even if what we're doing is entirely noble and worthy, even if we're being busy for Jesus, it can never be a substitute for spending time with Jesus, for sitting at his feet, for loving him, for adoring him. Robert Murray McChenney, a Scottish evangelist, wrote this, no amount of activity in the king's service will ever make up for the neglect of the king. If we want to grow in our love for Jesus, we have to spend time with him. But sometimes it takes a dark night of the soul to refine and to refocus our priorities. So Peter runs to Jesus and when he gets there, Jesus cooks him breakfast and he asks Peter, who had just been through the worst few days of his life, do you love me? Do you love me more than these, even more than these other disciples? You know that I love you, Lord. Then feed my lambs. For a second time, do you love me? You know that I love you, Lord. 
then take care of my sheep. And then for a third and final time, do you love me? Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. We learn from this dialogue what it is that Jesus most desires from us. What do you think Jesus is looking most for from you personally? Is it to be a moral person? Moral righteousness? Is it for you to achieve something for him, to do something significant for the Lord? It's so easy to be wired that way. But the truth is the number one thing that Jesus is looking for from each one of us is our love. It's that simple. Do you love me? Jesus desires our love and affection. He desires intimacy with him. And when we are in those desert places, those times of trial, when we are feeling lost like Peter, when suffering comes, God may not have sent it, but he can use it and he's looking for love to emerge from the fire so he can open a deeper gate of intimacy with him. I've been listening to some preaching from a pastor in Florida called Michael Koulianis, and he went through a period many years ago feeling really burnt out. He was suffering, he was exhausted from his own dark night of the soul. He'd become tangled up in the heavy nets of his own calling. And in 2006, he did a retreat with some Protestant nuns, and he shared his burdens with the nuns, all of the things he was kind of carrying in his nets, the good things God had given him that had become a burden. And he had a lot of really difficult ministry decisions to make. So he asked them practical questions. And he said this, I asked those nuns 20 questions. Shall I move my ministry base from California? Shall I do this? Shall I do that? Practical questions. And they gave me the same answer every single time. Find the love of Jesus and love him back. And he found this so frustrating because he wanted practical advice, but their words convicted him and they refined his motives for ministry and his focus on getting results and he was propelled into a fresh pursuit of loving Jesus in the midst of challenging circumstances. The same lesson applies for me. The same lesson applies for all of us. We might ask, well, what about my challenges at work, find the love of Jesus and love him back. What about the heavy nets I'm grappling with? Find the love of Jesus and love him back. Or what about this broken relationship? Find the love of Jesus and love him back. What about this health condition that is really getting me down? Find the love of Jesus and love him back. In times of trouble, God wants to use those circumstances to refine and deepen our love. That's the first thing we learn from this passage. And the second is that loving Jesus, despite great opposition, is actually the very basis for our callings and indeed the basis for spiritual authority Do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Peter was not released into his commission as a leader until his love had been 
refined and revealed. I mean, Peter's calling, of course, had always been there. Jesus told him when they first met that he would be the rock upon which the church would be built. He even gave him a new name, Peter, which literally means rock. He was gonna be the most senior apostolic leader of the early church in Jerusalem. But he wasn't released into his commission. He wasn't told to feed my sheep until his love had matured. Because the rock on which the church was to be built was to be the rock of loving Jesus. Lasting spiritual authority in whatever context you may find yourself in begins with loving Jesus. But it took some dark nights of suffering for Peter's love to be refined and revealed. Peter was called to be the rock, but the paradox is Peter wasn't that strong rock until the rock was broken. And it's the same for David. He was only crowned after he'd been crushed. Both men had to walk through trials for the fullness of the fragrance of their hearts to arise and for a deeper intimacy to be revealed. God used their suffering to break the outer shell and draw love from the well. And we may find ourselves at times in the same process. So I'd like to invite the worship team up. And this is my exhortation tonight. If you are in an arid, dry, barren desert in your life, don't give up. And don't let the enemy tempt you to be offended by God. His love for you is beyond anything you could ever imagine. Turn your hearts towards him. Worship him like David. Run to him like Peter. Run the race to pursue his face. Run to the one. And may we let our love for Jesus deepen and may it be matured and refined and revealed. And I want to end by quoting again that Jesus, that question Jesus asks Peter. It's the most important question you could ever be asked and it's a question designed to draw something out of the depths of us, even when circumstances are arrayed against us. Do you love me? Jesus asks that question to each one of us this evening. Do you love me?